some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird kick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back, and that's when I thought I saw one. Uh, when to call it 
And so, uh, but you know what? Uh, enough of us traveling. Let's get let's get Mark in here. He's uh, waiting patiently. I know he's probably saliv- salivating, you know, drooling here to get on. <laughs> let's do it for you guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about for hours and hours. So you got just got to cut me off whenever you can. But I, one, hey, one Mark. Small, hey, you guys, thanks for having me on. You guys are very, Our very pleasure. Nice. Oh man, it's a great. It's always great to talk with you guys. And honestly, it's it's a pretty good honor to be on Monster Monster X Radio today. Um, I, I don't mean to be pandering to you guys, but your show actually really does get better and better with every episode. It really does. I was able to chime in and and, and listen in on John Kirk's interview this last Sunday, and it was just superlative. I mean, John's such a, a terrific researcher and a great guy, but your interview is was really superb. You were able to really allow John to talk and really bring things out. And um, you, you guys are your, your skills as interviewers and your skills as a radio show host are is getting better every every episode. So keep keep going. You guys are doing great. I find the less that I talk, the better that the show is. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> that is the key. <laughs> it goes both ways. <laughs> Well, as a small anecdote to what you just mentioned, Gunner, I remember when we had to cancel the, or I took it upon myself for executive action to cancel last year's trip back in November. And then later, I think at the summit or something like that, the Sasquatch Summit, you had mentioned um, how, uh, how hacked you were that I had canceled the trip. But I knew that if I could get you really on the trail for this year's trip, you'd understand why I canceled the November trip. I mean, <laughs> okay. It would have been a search and rescue operation to get us off the mountain that night, I swear. <laughs> no, it was it was wise decision. Yeah, but, especially so, with the winds and the snow that, that ensued later, for sure. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself or tell our audience a little bit about yourself and uh, what – what possessed you to take on the pursuit of finding this lost location uh, of I, the miner's cabin? I, I, I was born in the Pacific Northwest. I was born down in Newport, Oregon. And then we moved inland when I was about two years old to Newburgh, just west of Portland. And I, I was born in 66. So I grew up in an age for a lot of people who were born about that time that remember that America pop culture was finding a resurgence in the early 70s of um, television and, and say, second-run features at the drive-in uh, books on the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of the unknown. And there was this great... You saw it in every bookstore. You saw it in, in all the movies. Things like Chariots of the Gods and, and, say, for Bigfoot, the movie Sasquatch, Legend of Bigfoot. Rod Serling did a lot of writing. That culminated really in, in television with, say, uh, Kolchak, the Night Stalker series, or eventually uh, Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of. So I, I, grew up, I grew up in that kind of culture and have always been fascinated with you know, the the unknown. If there's a mystery there, it always tends to grab me. So um, I've always had kind of an armchair approach to it. I've done some 
uh, poltergeist and, and ghost investigations in the past and just picked up a project here and there. And what actually got me going on the Ape Canyon project was uh, some years ago, and I can't remember how many years ago, eight or nine years ago, I was perusing the lower regions of the Dewey Decimal System at the Vancouver Public Library in, in uh, uh, Vancouver, Washington. And <clears throat> their section uh, that covers all kinds of strange things, Atlantis and UFO and Bigfoot, their section's not large, but I came across a copy of Nick Redfern's book, Three Men Seeking Monsters. And if anybody, even if even if one is not really into the subject of the unknown, it's a great read. Nick is a tremendously great writer. He really draws you in. And Three Men Seeking Monsters is a wonderful guy buddy book of three guys in you know a decrepit old van, and they go on this beer swilling mystery search journey throughout Devonshire and into Cornwall to research a um, old, very old story from sightings from the 1870s, 1880s of a creature that was colloquially known as the Man Monkey. And so Nick Redfern and his buddies went down there. It's a wonderful book, but it was towards the end of the book when perhaps Nick was expounding more uh, philosophically um, that he promulgated an idea, which I'm sure has been out there before, but I had never heard about it, and it really grabbed me. And it was this idea that if you have, a, say, a rash of mysterious encounters, sightings, lights in the sky or monsters in the woods or just strange things going on, the idea was was that if you looked around to research it, if you looked around the general timeline, and if you looked around the general geographic area, more often than not, you would come across other seemingly unrelated incidences of high strangeness, as our pal John Fort used to say. And that idea really grabbed me for whatever reason. And so I purposefully set out to test that idea for myself. And I grabbed two stories from my file, from my shelves. One was a story of a series of incidences by multiple witnesses that was not known at all. It's never been published or documented. It was just friends of friends that I knew a very strange set of incidences in um, western Yamhill County near Sheridan where there were multiple sightings of a dark, shadowy, extremely tall creature up in the hills above Sheridan uh, with a strange sort of red glowing light around its eyes. And this happened over the course of about four or five years. So I took that, I took that, story on and started looking into it pursuant to the idea that Nick Redfern talked about in his book. And the other story that I grabbed was an extremely well-known story, and it was the 1924 Ape Canyon incident. What happened is that um, my, my approach to everything in any kind of monster or strange historical story the first thing I hit is to see what has been published before, what has been documented, 
what what what's there in any kind of um, public records, say deed records, mining records, uh, death and birth records, um, looking at uh, previous things that were published in area newspapers at the time. And so I started kind of running these two projects parallel to one another, and I was caught in this avalanche of information on Ape Canyon that had been published, of course, during the 60s and early 70s when Fred Beck was interviewed and saw some amount of fame, but more than that, what was actually published and documented at the time in the summer of 1924 that I found that there was this huge amount of information that needed to be combed through that really, as far as I could tell, had not been um, reviewed carefully, uh, particularly in light of what we all know the story, the, the stories that were published, say, in Fred Beck's book, I Fought the Man of Mount St. Helens in the late 60s, or retellings of the story. There was a lot of information, a lot of detail to the Ape Canyon incident um, that really had not been gone over before. So unfortunately, that Yamhill County story has been kind of put on the back burner for me. I'm still pursuing it because I am in contact with witnesses of that incident in Yamhill County. But because I've been so buried in the Ape Canyon story, the Yamhill County one is kind of put on the back burner. But that's what got me started with Ape Canyon, specifically with Nick Redfern's book. And honestly, on a brief run, it, run the gamut for a brief test, um, I did find things that were seemingly unrelated that was going on at the time in the summer of 1924, seemingly unrelated to the Ape Canyon incident, um, but there was some strange stuff going on in 1924, <laughs> very strange stuff going on in 1924 that grabbed my attention as well. Um, so that's how I got started on Ape Canyon, and after researching it to death, going to different county courthouses and different libraries um, around the area, different historical societies, wherever I needed to go in order to chase down leads of anything pertaining to the 24 incident, I suddenly realized that there may be, there might have been a good chance that the cabin site and the site of the mine where this attack took place could very well have survived the initial eruptions of Mount St. Helens in the 80s. And so I started taking field trips up there looking, just poking around looking, using clues that I had garnered uh, from different news articles and different publications because the site was lost. The last time that I have any definitive information that the site had been seen or one could see the cabin was in 1936. It was a publication by the Columbia National Forest that was later on amalgamated into the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. And it was a, it was a trail map, and they said in 1936, it was a trail map that said, you can go and fish in this lake, and it's stocked with this kind of fish, or you can go up to this peak and hike this peak. And there was a short article on the back of the map that said you could stand on the trail and look down the cliff into what is now known as Ape Canyon and see the cabin site in 1936. That was what was published, and since then, I have found no other document proof that the cabin site had been 
seen or maintained or necessarily visited or whatnot. And so I started looking for it. You know, Mark, uh, it's a it, it, it's an absolutely amazing journey uh, to this discovery uh, or rediscovery. But for for you know, briefly, just for those that are listening in on on this show, can you briefly give uh, the audience um, the lowdown on on the actual Ape uh, Canyon encounter? What actually took place there? You know, I mean, most people are aware of you know, the 1924 Ape Canyon uh, encounter, or possible encounter. But for those that are not aware, do you mind just giving a brief um, report on as, that? As briefly as I can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. There's a lot to it. <laughs> yeah. uh, trust uh, me. We've got two hours, no problem. <laughs> yeah, take all the time you need. The, the abridged version is that I always start with is that on the morning of Friday, July the 11th, 1924, a group of miners, there were five of them who had been up there, who had been up there working this gold mine that was uh, uh, established by Fred Beck and his father-in-law, Marion Smith. And uh, they came off the mountain, off of the east side of Mount Mount St. Helens, and uh, went back to Kelso and met their friends and family. And they had stated that they were giving up their claim to the gold mine. They were giving up any claim to the cabin that they had just built that year, just six weeks prior to that time when they came off on July 11th. Um, And they were never going to go back up there again after claiming that they had somewhat successfully fended off an all-night attack by a band of what we now would call Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Sasquatch and perhaps arguably Bigfoot had not entered our, our, our language yet, so they called them mountain devils. These guys had established the, um, the first step in, 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 in claiming a piece of land for mining, called a mining location notice in the summer of 1922. So they had been working this gold mine for about two years. Um, They had actually been prospecting, headed up the Lewis River Valley east of Woodland prior to that since 1918. This whole thing was started by Marion Smith, the the real true patriarch of the story. He was the head of the whole mining project, and actually he was the head of the family. Um, His daughter had married, his daughter Mabel had married Fred Beck, Another miner was Leroy Perry Smith, uh, Marion Smith's son. Another miner involved was Gabe Lefevre, Marion Smith's cousin. He was uh, a little bit older than Marion, I think by about three or four years. And a friend of the family, John Peterson. There were, there were two other miners involved, so there were seven in total that I could find, that had worked this mine over the, over the couple of years, but actually only five were there during the incident in the summer of 1924, but they had uh, established their claim in the summer of 1922 on the north side of this ca- of this canyon called Ape Canyon. During those first two years, they were just tent camping 
on the west side of a butte called Pumice Butte. Pumice Butte is, is at the head on the west side of Eight Canyon. There were tent camping on the west side, and uh, coming in and going out every season, because you can't stay up there all year long, come September, November, Thanksgiving, you should really be out of there because you're going to get stuck up there with the early snows. So they were hauling their stuff back and forth. And during those two years, things started kind of uh, slowly snowballing for strange things that were happening. There were high-pitched whistling calls of something up on the ridgetop. And you stop and you listen, and then there would be an answering call from the other ridgetop. They couldn't figure out what was going on, but there would be calls all night long. There were these strange sounds of a deep thumping sound, as if you were beating your chest of a big barrel-sized fellow, and it was so low in decibel that they really could not determine what direction it was coming from. At one point during those first two years, either 22 or 23, while they were camping, they were camping at the west side of the butte, and right beside them was a low, flat a uh, plain with two streams, or the stream that forked into two and came back together, leaving sort of a sand island in the middle. That flat plain is still there, but it's just that the water's underneath mud flows that's, you know, 20 and 30 feet down. And it was Leroy uh, Smith's time, turn to go and wash out pots and pans, and he went down to the stream to wash out the cookware, and in this island between these two streams, the sandy island, he found a single footprint, and it appeared to be a human footprint, except for the fact that it was extremely large, 16 inches, 17 inches long or so, an extremely large footprint. And the other strange thing about it was that it was a single footprint. There were not two. There was not a footprint leading away or coming towards the print or anything. And he brought the guys over, and he's like, you know, what, what's this? And they had no idea. It was, it was strange. Eventually, the assays on the mine started to be good enough, and it was a growing concern for this mine that they decided to build a permanent structure closer to the mine, much, much, much closer to the mine, a structure that was sizable and strong enough to withstand the snows. They weren't going to stay up there year-round, but they needed a structure that was strong enough to hold Food stores, equipment, dynamite. They had to use dynamite as well as hard pan tools in order to dig the mine. So they just didn't have to haul their stuff up every season to haul it in in May and then haul it out in September and November. They just wanted something strong enough. So they took the time when they went back up there in the spring, I'm guessing somewhere around the second week of May of 1924, down at the mine site they sawed off trees, and they were sizable trees. Looking at the looking at the one photo I have of the cabin, perhaps 24 inches, 30 inches in diameter, enough to build a cabin, a log cabin, 20 uh, 20 feet by 10 feet. So they were doing that in their off hours while they were working the mine. And the first incident happened just prior to July the fourth. Uh, Marion and Fred were going to the spring uh, to the north of the cabin. Uh, to uh, get some water, and they saw across a, a draw just north of the spring this 
very large creature uh, poking its head out from behind a cedar tree. And the reports were that it was a seven to eight foot tall human-like creature covered entirely with reddish-brown hair. Um, Marion Smith raises his gun. At that point in the story, Marion Smith, Marion Smith, let me back up, Marion Smith was extremely experienced. In 1924, Marion Smith was 58 years old. And he had grown up in Kelso area in the age of big timber. And he was known as somewhat of a mountain man. He had seen and fished and hunted pretty much everything there was to see in the mountains. And he was very comfortable up in the mountains. But he had started with these strange noises and these strange things going on to somewhat issue a camp order. No one was to leave camp unarmed. If you were going to go out, you needed some sort of, you know, firing pistol with you. So when they saw this creature behind the tree, Marion Smith raises his gun and shoots three times at the creature, confident that he had hit the creature in the head because he said that he could see the bark skinning off as the bullets passed by the tree to hit the creature. So Fred shoots the thing, and Fred starts taking off, and Marion Smith says, no, no, don't run, don't run. We got the thing. Let's just walk over there across this short draw. And they get there, and there's nothing there. There's no blood. There's no hair. There's no body. There's no nothing. And they look beyond, and they can see this extremely large human-like creature marching up the hill away from them, turning once to look at them but keeping on going. When... They were confident that they had hit it, that Smith had hit the mark three times in a row. So they go back home to celebrate Fourth of July, which is coming up now. Now, on the what is it, 92nd anniversary, uh, they went back home to Kelso to celebrate the Fourth. And uh, Marion Smith talked to some of his family about it. One thing that, through this whole incident, that nobody could really square in their minds was that Marion Smith had a reputation of being a very affable fellow, a very congenial, well-liked fellow, but he was also very solid. That when he said he was going to do something, you could count on the fact that he was going to do it. When he said that he, was going to, that he did do something, you know that he did it. So when he's coming back off the mountain with these incredible stories that seem, you know, completely implausible about this huge mountain devil monster in the woods that he had taken shots at, people could not really rectify that in their minds exactly what was going on with Smith. So they came back up after the after the fourth and things really started going them, uh, not going well for them, I should say, up there at the cabin site. At one point, somewhere around the 5th or 6th of July, Leroy Smith was coming back from the spring, hauling water back to the cabin. He's almost to the cabin, and he turns around, and there's the same one or another one right behind him in the bush. He was startled by some noise, and he turned around, and there's a seven to eight foot tall creature standing there staring at them well under his dad's orders of course he has his pistol and i believe 
if I remember right, Leroy said that he fired two or three shots into the creature, which and which completely didn't phase the creature. And now that you guys have been up there and have seen what an extremely small, limited area this really is, it would have had to have only been 50 or 60, 70 feet away. The creature turns and goes back into the woods. About two days later, on Thursday, July the 10th, this happens again. Leroy comes in. At this, the, the first time when Leroy shot a creature, all the guys were down in the mine, down further away. Uh, the second time Leroy comes in, and it's later on in the afternoon and early evening, same thing happens. He comes back bringing water from the spring, and there's another creature there. He takes a shot at it, and everybody who is in the cabin comes boiling out like bees, all armed and ready to go. Marion Smith said later that he had thought that they had plugged this creature with about 16 or 18 rounds of ammunition. The last shot, at least according to the 1924 interviews, was the creature was at the top of the top of the bluff, and uh, Fred took the shot, and the creature either fell down or crouched down and scrambled down the cliff down into Ape Canyon. They all bed down for the night, and there was one part of an interview where they were seriously talking about bugging out. we got to go. This is getting way too heavy and way too intense. Let's forget it and go home. Okay, let's do that tomorrow. Well, <laughs> Thursday night, uh, the sun had just had gone down, and it almost was if a large truck had come barreling down the mountain and rammed into their cabin. The cab, something struck the cabin so hard that it, it shook the cabin. And in between the logs, there was a piece of chinking that had fallen out. And they could see, they all get up, what was that? And they looked through this hole through where the chinking had fallen out. And they could see in the moonlight six, seven of these dark, large, shadowy creatures, just like the one that they had been shooting, dancing around, moving around the cabin. Um, I did check the lunar record, by the way, and it was a clear night, and it was a full moon that night. And so they were able to see very, very clearly. And then suddenly the, the cabin's being attacked, massive, you know, being rained down with rocks. Whatever this large creature is, it is up on the roof, up on the shake roof, pounding itself, trying to pound its way in. The door is suddenly being busted open. Someone's trying to get through the door. They tear apart their beds that they had made out of fur boughs and secured the door or blocked the door. And they didn't know what else to do except to make the fire bigger and start shooting through the roof any time that anything was on the roof. They're starting to shoot through it. They're screaming. They're singing. They're yelling. Uh, just anything to make this whole thing stop. They're, they're shooting through this hole between the logs. Um, after a long, long night of this, the sun is just barely coming up. So the sun in July is starting to, daylight's starting to crack, like, you know, mid-4 o'clock, 5 o'clock or so. This whole thing started about 10 or 11 that night. So we're talking about five or six hours of continued attacks onto this cabin trying to bust in. Oh, 
One thing that was interesting that didn't come out later in the 1960s, it was pointed out in a newspaper article that in the lower side of the cabin, when reporters went up to look at the cabin after the incident, they found a large hole where something had been digging that night, trying digging underneath the the base log of the cabin, trying to dig their way in. The miners said later in the interview that there was something digging outside, trying to get under the logs to get at them. So this happened all night long. Friday morning, July the 11th happens. They grab whatever they need to, smokes and their boots, and let's get the hell out of here. They walk down, and they and it's about six or seven miles to Sparrow Lake where they had parked their truck. And on the trail, they said, nobody say anything to anybody. They're going to think we're crazy. You know, we have wives and kids, and we, have, we go to church, we have people to work for and everything like that. Nobody say anything to anybody. Well, I always say that if I'm about to get on the phone with my pal Shannon Gunner tonight, and on my way to the phone, I get hit by a bus, and you know I survive, and I get on the phone. What's the first thing I'm going to say? You guys, you know, you wouldn't believe what just happened to me just a few minutes ago. So Marion Smith gets into town. How can he not talk about it? He ends up at uh, the Blue Ox Tavern in downtown Kelso, which is now not there. It's under the Allen Street Bridge. It's It's been demolished. And he talks to his friends about it at the bar. And that was Friday afternoon, Friday night. And the next thing you know, Saturday evening in the Longview Daily News, it was an evening paper. That's when the story first broke was in the Longview Daily News of, Kel- of miners back at Kelso with incredible tales of mountain devils. And that's how the world found out about Ape Canyon. Just fascinating, but I have to ask you a question on on this on, on what happened to them. Is it? I've heard that there was a point where something reached its arm in and grabbed an uh, axe handle or something. Is that true? Is that part of the story? It is part of the story, but I omit that part usually in my not so brief retelling of Ape Canyon <laughs> that I just gave. Um, the reason why. I tend to omit it, but uh, you know, I'm certainly going to talk to you about it now. Um, was that part of the story is that at one point, um, a, a the the cabin was constructed with um, battens uh, running along the long side of the 20 foot long side, and then across these battens, the guys had chopped uh, probably Douglas fir uh, shakes in order to shake the roof. So it was kind of a thinnish kind of material covering the roof. At one point, this extremely large fist and extremely large arm busts through the roof and um, starts flailing around, just as if you and I were going to go through a wet paper bag and start flailing around trying to grab anything, and ends up finding with his hand, with its hand, the hand, the handle of a kid axe that was by the fire, uh, sitting there to uh, split the wood into kindling. And it starts pulling the axe back through the hole in the roof. Quickly, Fred jumps up 
and he grabs the head of the axe and turns it so that as the axe is being withdrawn, it gets caught in the battens, and it, and it can't, and, it, and whatever's pulling this axe out cannot get it out. Marion Smith comes right up along Fred, and he runs the barrel of his rifle right along the handle and takes a, takes a shot. Bla- you know, of course, you know, the charge is going off right in Fred Beck's ear. And whatever's pulling this axe out drops it. They take the, back, the axe back inside the cabin and, and put it back in a corner where it's quote-unquote safe. Um, there was one other incident, which um, it, 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 also I don't repeat a lot, in that um, there was a uh, there was a metal uh, ventilator over the smoke hole. There, there was a gap in the roof where um, right above their fire pit inside the cabin, so that smoke could get out and get ventilation. The ventilator had been knocked off. And indeed, the ventilator had in fact been knocked off because reporters going up there in the next week did note that in their articles that the ventilator was off and laying on the ground next to the cabin. Um, during, during the night, there was a large enough rock to come through that hole in the roof where the ventilator had been knocked off and hit Fred in the head. Um, it said that it knocked him out for a little while. And uh, then he came to and, you know, jumped up and went back to work fighting off these mountain devils. Those two parts of the story, uh, particularly the axe handle uh, part of the story, the only time that it was ever noted was in Fred Beck's book that he wrote with his son, Ronald Arnie Beck. I thought that eight men at Mount St. Helens. The axe handle part of the story was never written about in any other publication, particularly when they were interviewed by multiple reporters. All the miners were interviewed to one degree or another in 1924 by 5-6-7 uh, different newspapers. The Axe story was never talked about in 1924. The only time it came out was in 1966 when, when Fred wrote his book. The boulders coming down and knocking Fred out, that's a little bit more of splitting hairs because in 1924, yes, he was hit in the head, but later on it said that it knocked him out no, oh, excuse me. No, it said that he knocked him in the head and knocked him unconscious. Later on, he said that he was not knocked unconscious. It's a small detail. The other thing right. that is of interest in the 1966 book is that Fred said that he took that final shot where the creature went over the cliff the following morning, Friday of July the 11th, which I doubt as well because in the 24 interviews, it was repeated over and over again that that, that last shot where the cl- creature went over the cliff was in the afternoon battle just prior to the night's attack on the cabin. So I think that what happened is Friday morning came, they grabbed their smokes, and they got out of there as fast as they could. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, what kind of, uh, Mark, what kind of weapons were they equipped with? What were they firing at these creatures with? The, um, it was, uh, honestly, anything that they could, but the, what Fred was carrying <laughs> was a thirty thirty Winchester, and uh, Leroy Smith had a Remington uh, pistol. What the other guys had, I don't, I don't know. That was never talked about. Um, but those two were were specified 
um, in um, a news article by the uh, Seattle PI, uh, a fellow named uh, Frank Lynch, who also had the nickname of Slim, uh, went up there uh, and coincidentally ran into Fred and Leroy at the cabin. It was the only time I found where Fred and Leroy were the only miners at any time that did return to the cabin site when they were taking reporters from the Portland News and um, a couple of Portland police officers up there. The Seattle PI happened to be going up there to take a look at the cabin as well and shot a picture of the inside of the cabin with Fred and Leroy in the pose of holding their pistols and holding their, you know, holding their weapons in the pose as if they were fighting off the mountain devils. And at that time, they, those were the weapons that, they were, that were noted that they were carrying. Well, let me ask you this. How many of the individuals, the miners uh, that were present during this you know, supposed encounter, actually uh, came out and talked about it? Uh, were there any that remained silent or was just a select few that uh, talked about this incident uh, with with anybody? Right. That's a, that's a that's a very good question, and it, and it has a, even a history in of itself. In 1924, uh, when when they got back to Kelso and let the word out of what had happened to them up there, the papers got a got a hold of it, and at the time. Uh, it was in the early times of the Associated Press. There was an AP, and it got on the AP wire and spread quite liberally throughout the western states in the newspaper. And what it inspired was the uh, what came to be known as the Great Ape Hunt of 1924, where, uh, quite you know, dramatically speaking, half of the munitions in the town's armory and half of the young male population were drained to go up there and bag the big one. Everyone was going to the mountain to shoot these huge ape men that were that were up there that were just discovered by the Marion Smith and, and Fred Beck party. At the same time, newspapers got a hold of this story, and uh, a number of them went at least up to Kelso to interview the miners. I have record of three um, newspapers that actually took the track to go up to the mountain and view the cabin site and spend the night there. But um, there were a number of papers that went up and interviewed the miners. To one degree, well, all the, all the miners were interviewed at the time in 1924. Uh, Marion Smith uh, was the most outspoken he he was kind of the first one to really talk about the story in detail. Marion Smith did not live very long. He died in 1936. Uh, after that, Fred Beck kind of took up the torch, and, and he was the one to speak the most about it. But all the miners were interviewed at the time. Um, Gabe Lefevre spoke the least about the least about it, but then on up the line more and more of the miners talked about it. The one interesting thing that I think about a lot and I talk about a lot since I have spoken with uh, some of the relatives of the miners is that Leroy Smith lived quite a while because he was the youngest. In, in 1924, Leroy was only 19 years old. And so Leroy, I believe, died in 1975. And when Fred Beck was interviewed quite a number of times, say, starting in 1966 by Roger Patterson, 
and say actually he was or he was interviewed earlier in 1961 or two by Peter Byrne. So Fred Beck was interviewed quite quite often throughout the 60s and early 70s. But even though Leroy Smith lived in Kelso, just a few miles from Fred, even though he was still alive and still working, nobody interviewed Leroy Smith ever. And it it, it kind of confounded me for a long time. But there were two things about why I think Leroy was never interviewed. In, in 1924, he gave just a brief set of quotes. And in 1924, Leroy said, I don't know what that was up there, but I know that I never, ever want to have anything to do with it ever again. And he meant it. I spoke with his daughter, and I asked his daughter, who's still alive, and I asked her, you know, did your dad ever talk with you about his early days of mining up on Mount St. Helens with his dad? And she said, no, he never did. He never broke loose with any information about it. And she was aware later in my conversations with her, she was aware of the Ape Canyon story, but she didn't know that that was her dad and her grandfather and her uncle. She didn't know that was her family that was associated with Ape Canyon. So about two or three years ago, I um, understood that John Green had a copy, an audio copy of Roger Patterson's interview with Fred Beck. Um, a mutual friend was able to get a copy of that with John, and we were in conversations of you know him getting the copy and him mailing it to me. And he did talk with John. At this point, John was in the rest home and, and dealing with a lot of health issues. But in one of his more lucid moments, John said that when he went up to interview, when, when John went up to interview Fred Beck, John knew that Leroy Smith was still in town, and he knew that he was, you know, around and working, but he also knew that Leroy Smith did not want to talk about it, so he let it go. John Green let it go, and he didn't go try to talk with Leroy Smith. John Green was um, a gentleman and a Canadian and an incredibly polite man. I can't say I wouldn't. I would have been that polite i think i would have like well forget it i'm gonna go knock on his door (laughs) even if leroy would like run me off with a gun at least i want to still go ahead and try but i think john green was too much of a gentleman and he didn't actually want to bother mr smith about it so he didn't (laughs) so that that was yeah that that that's one thing that confounded me about that leroy smith was never interviewed except for his initial interview in 1924 yeah Fascinating stuff, you know. And something story. I oh, fascinating story, and 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 so open and unended. It's got so many facets to it. But you know, I, I gotta wonder, and I'm sure the audience wonders as well. You know, this is a fantastical story here. I mean, this is incredible if true. Um, so if, if not true, I mean. Why would these guys come down out of the mountain and then um, share this? What did they have to gain by um, sharing a story like this? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me now. Back then, I don't know, wasn't around, but it just doesn't make sense. In your opinion, you know, Mark, what, did they have anything to gain by uh, telling a story uh, of this nature? Um, there, 
there, there, there are two things to that. One, they had something to lose and that they did lose. Um, they lost – well, they didn't lose their claim to the gold mine. They gave up their claim to their gold mine purposefully. They gave it up purposefully. There are two documents um, associated with the Vendor White Mine. By, by the way, the, the, mine is, the mine is called the Vendor White Mine for the Ape Canyon Mine. Um, there are two documents filed at the Comania County Courthouse because the mine is within Comania County. The initial one is the mining location notice. Um, that's the first thing that you have to do in order to eventually patent your mining claim is that you just don't walk in and get the mining claim. You have to put the public on notice that says, hey, there's a mine up there and I'm going to be working it for a statutory amount of time. And given the right um, statutory conditions that you're working the mine, eventually, once you're able to prove that, then you thereby prove the mine. You patent the mine and the mineral claims, the underground rights, transfer to you. So then one of the things that you also have to do in that statutory amount of time working the mine is that you have to file a proof of labor. A proof of labor is an affidavit that you swear on oath, and um, you say, uh, here's, here's the mine as filed originally, and I've worked these many days on it, I've moved this much ore, um, and um, you know this is how much we've done so far. And then that's your proof of labor and has to be witnessed. So there's the original mining location notice. The other one is a proof of labor. And the proof of labor is the only other document associated with a vendor white mine. And they said that Fred Beck and Marion Smith and another miner, Mac Rhodes, who helped them, said, we worked these many days and we moved this, ore, this much ore. And they ended up essentially quit claiming all of their interest in their mine back to the public. This is the clincher for me that knocked me over like a ton of bricks when I found this in the courthouse. They said that all work was completed on July the 10th of 1924. That was the night of the attack. They had another three months, maybe four months of good weather. They had just built this cabin five or six weeks prior, but they were giving it up. And they said all work was, to, was completed on July the 10th, and we know it was the 10th of July because multiple witnesses said in interviews later that yeah they came down on the morning of July the 11th talking about the attack the attack on the night on the night before so they had a lot to lose apparently the assays on the mine were quite good um you know, they threw around a couple of numbers of how much the gold was worth and how much gold they were hauling out of there but one thing that attests to that as a piece of evidence is that they actually bothered just a few weeks prior to build a formidable cabin. I mean, it, it wasn't an easy task in that location to build a cabin, but they did. But they were giving it all up. After that, after they walked and said, we're never going up, Marion Smith said that all of our wives have forbade us to go up there ever again, and no amount of, Marion Smith, no amount of money, he says, is going to get me up there ever again. He was quoted in the paper as saying that. Um, they really had nothing to gain. 
particularly with the fact that they filed the document giving their mine back to the public and if they were going to continue working on the mine, at least legally, and try to protect their claim, they'd have to start all over on, on their claim process, and they would have lost yeah. two years. Right. So, that, to me is uh, that, utter, yeah. that to me is utterly amazing, uh, and it adds so much credence to this possible encounter, this, this story. I mean, it's utterly amazing to me. I mean, they up and left, and, and not only did they up and leave, and they left a lot. They apparently would have had left not just the cabin, right, that they'd built five, six weeks prior, which is amazing, but they had left equipment, correct? They did. I hearken on a mason that I used to work with briefly and, and know, and he had worked in Hawaii for a number of years and dealt regularly with tsunami warnings. And there was the tsunami sirens that went off once in a while, and somehow in Hawaii you can tell whether it's serious or not. But when a tsunami was really going and the sirens were going off, he said, you grab your smokes and you grab your cell phone and you get out of there. And I think about that about these miners. That's exactly what they did. They grabbed the bare bones. They didn't take any tools back out with them. Fred Beck's grandson, Rod Beck, I've spoken with him over the phone uh, two or three times, at least twice. And from his grandfather's, he, Rod, Fred Beck's grandson, knew his grandfather extremely well. At one point in Rod's life, when he was youngish, maybe 12 or 13, um, he went to go live with his grandfather, Fred, through his teen and early adult years. And so Fred ended up being sort of a surrogate parent to him for in, his, in his development years. And uh, he knew Fred extremely well. He doesn't call him grandpa or grandfather. He calls him Fred. And from Fred's direction, uh, Rod had ended up in the logging industry up around Shalachi, on on a time when he had some time off, Rod went up there in the very early 70s. I think Rod said 72 or 73, and he was able to find the cabin again. Um, he was able to find the cabin site, and he said that he was able to find the tunnel. The tunnel of the mine was still there in the early 70s, and he described it to me, and he described it so well that I knew he had been up there. There are a few other folks <clears throat> who have said that they have been to the cabin site, and I suspect that they haven't because they describe the topography and it doesn't match anything to what the miners describe or what the reporters described later. Um, but I could tell that Rod had been up there. He described it specifically where it matched to the topography that I found today. Um, but Rod went up there, found the tunnel down below the cabin site, he said it was a short tunnel, maybe 50, 75 feet long, and he went back in there, and, yeah, he found all kinds of cool stuff, stuff that was still in there, you know, mining tools, you know, uh, boxes that were used for dynamite. They left everything behind except their boots and their tobacco probably <laughs> and hit the trail as fast as they could that morning. Yeah, yeah, they just up and left. Uh, it really adds credence to the whole the whole story. I mean, it's just fascinating stuff, Mark. Really fascinating. I kind of want to switch gears here, though, from what what actually happened back then, and, and switch gears into 
your research. You know, I want to, you know, I want people to recognize how much time you've spent researching this area and why you're so confident in the fact that you, you, you really truly <laughs> believe that nice. you've located this, this area. You're making me laugh. <laughs> confident is, I don't think everyone's, anyone's ever called me competent before, but that's very nice of you to say. Um, um, I, I, think, I think I know what you're getting at. One thing that um, I feel maybe not competent, but confident about. That, that, so about I'm sorry, that's what I meant, confident, yeah. Thank you. Is um, uh, I was born and bred as a land surveyor. My father is a land surveyor, and um, since I was nine, ten, eleven years old, um, I was helping dad out in the field uh, for fifty cents an hour, carrying stakes and beating down brush and everything. So I ended up uh, growing up in the land surveying land surveying profession, and it's a uh, Frankly, it's the, it's the best job in the world. Uh, you're dealing with all kinds of people. One day you're dealing with suits and ties, developing waterfront property, and then the next day you're dealing with farmers who have come to shotgun blows over a fence line or something like that, right? Um, the crux of land surveying, and I'm, I'm going to try to make this I'm going to try to make this short as well. Catherine always says, "Woe betide the person who comes up to Mark and asks." You know, Mark, how does land surveying work? Because I'll talk a lot longer about that than the Ape Canyon. But the reason why they license land surveyors is over boundary determination, property determination, where it's your property corner, where it's your property line. That all starts with sort of um, the, the, can be best described as a scientific method. The first thing that you do is research as many document sources as you can as to the history of a property corner or a property line, deed records, survey records. If there's a mine nearby, you research mining records, railroads, anything you can get your hands on that will help you identify the history of a property corner or a property line. Then you go out to, with all of your documents, and you go out in the field, and you look for evidence in the ground. You look for that pipe in the ground. You look for old fence lines buried in trees. You look for any kind of physical evidence in the ground that will help you correlate that information back to the document evidence, the document evidence where a surveyor or a property owner said, here's my property corner in 1870. You survey and measure to everything and then you bring everything together. You bring in your measurements, your document evidence, your field evidence that you've gotten, and try to make sense of all that often contrary information, information that contradicts itself into the location of someone's property corner. So with that, that's what tends to give one skills that works very, very well for historical monster research like this is <laughs> because Ape Canyon is exactly like any other kind of field research project that I may perform for land surveying. Um, and so it was right up my alley. Not a lot of other people were doing it either. And um, so that's one, that's, that's one reason why Ape Canyon was kind of a combination of dumb luck and hard work that just coincidentally or not uh, panned out. 
it sure seemed to work out on this one. Yeah, no kidding. Well, the, but, I mean, you – yeah, go ahead, Gunner. No, I mean, I was going to say one of the things that, that came to my mind, and I think I vocalized it to to Mark while we were dangling off the side of, of the mountain on our way down <laughs> to the – Literally going side. off the mountain, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it, it honestly, it, it kind of almost had to be you to find this site with your particular set of skills. I mean, that you know, you're, you're a land surveyor – you're uh, a little nuts because it took somebody who would really dedicate themselves to to the search and not a lot of, I mean, how many people are going to do that? And and you're also, you know, you have some uh, mountain climbing skills, which I'm sure, sure came in handy in getting down to the site. So, <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it, that was, it, it was an interesting set of circumstances that it Yeah, but you know, by, by the way, just, just as an aside, I am very, very proud of you guys. You guys are now part of the inner circle. You guys did very, very well up there. Everyone is, goes up there. None of us, you know, none of us get, get paid to do any of this kind of work. And so when we do this kind of work, we're doing it. We're doing it for the cause, but we're also doing it to have a good time. Falling off the mountain and breaking your leg or dying does not contribute to having a good time, right? <laughs> so my my goal is always, you know, everyone gets down safe, everyone comes up and goes home safe, and you guys did great. You guys did very, very well. But well, it, was, it, it was fun at most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's great. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you had a good time. Um, one thing, though, and I feel that this is kind of – the one contribution that I can make, I'm trying to make, to the body of work that's being done. And I, I think about this, of course, historically. Land, land surveyors tend to put things in historical terms. Um, when, Like I said, when I, grew, when I was growing up and there were people doing all kinds of research, say what we're talking about, about mountain devils and Sasquatch and everything, and Patterson and Byrne and Green and, and everybody were doing their research. What they were doing, and, and they hit on the Ape Canyon story because they found out about this story that happened up on Mount St. Helens and went, in, went and interviewed Fred Beck. What those guys were doing is they were trying to get the story from Fred Beck about what happened on 1924 in the light of adding some facet to the body of evidence of the phenomenon of Sasquatch, right? They were not necessarily trying to um, get into the validity of Fred Beck's story, to verify his story, to research it to death. They weren't trying to do that. So the fact that that was not done at the time, say in 1969 or 1970, I, I don't fault them for that. Say John Green. John John Green's um, purpose was different than say what I am trying that what I'm trying to do. Also, with researchers and investigators today, you guys, as an example, Shelley Covington, Montana. All these research, Cliff, Cliff Berkman, all these researchers are going out and trying to interview witnesses, look at the evidence at the ground. Um, they're trying to get the information up today, say, as a journalist would, as a, as a reporter would. My contribution 
that I think that I can make are on these historical stories. I think that there are some stories out there, like Ape Canyon, on another project that I'm on, on that's in its infancy, is down in Thompson Flat, down in southwest Oregon. These are stories that are known to one degree or another are worth an extremely hard look. There is enough information out there that it's been documented. There could be evidence in the ground. There could be evidence literally there in the field that can be recovered to help perpetuate the story, to help maybe deny the story. But these historical stories, I think, are important to preserve. Finding the evidence and the document evidence, evidence in the ground even, that surround these stories is worth a second hard look, as maybe an investigative reporter might do. I feel that that's, that's my small part that I would try to contribute to this um, that I think I'm good at, or relatively good at, um, in, in being able to research things and really get down to the nitty-gritty. That's the exciting part is really being able to dig in and find those records, find the death records, find the information that is still there in the dusty vaults of the county courthouse auditor's office that's just there waiting for us to shed a little bit of light on what happened in 1904, in 1924, when these people said they were attacked by monsters in the woods. Mark, you don't give yourself enough credit. Uh, I wouldn't say you're, you're, you're good at what you do. You're amazing at what you do. Uh, so much to the fact that, you know, I've talked to you many times before about, uh, and you've done presentations on, on this particular site, this particular encounter, and uh, haven't been out there. I, you know, I am personally convinced, without a doubt, you have located the site of the cabin. And uh, having been there and partaking in the whole excursion and all the trials and tribulations, I was floored uh, that, well, I was just floored that it was found, period, but given the location and the area that we went, I was, it even dropped my flooring lower. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Mark, you don't give yourself enough credit having said so well, that. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't. You're truly an amazing individual and, and really... Uh, quite the researcher, uh, you know. I wish there was more people like you out there because it's it's. Oh, um, you guys are like way too kind. God, you guys are way too kind, Shane. But I gotta tell uh, you, yeah. Um, I don't I don't take anybody up there. You know, just like hey, can I go? It's like well, uh, we're kind of full this year. I purposefully take the people, you know, Shane and Gunner, Cliff, Shelley, Craig. Other people, I I, ta- I want to desperately take people up there who are actively investigating, who are actively researching. Abigail, Abigail Bernard has a has a vast background in archaeology. I want to take people who are used to hearing my hearing my story and hearing my evidence. Okay, Mark, good story, but I want people to look at it on the ground. And call me on it. I want, well, there's an old adage, again, to go back to land surveying. (laughs) There's an old adage in land surveying that says, let the contrary be shown. Let the contrary be shown. You are for certain that you've made a well-balanced, definitive decision based on the evidence 
of something, whatever it is you're researching. You're a research biologist. You're a chemical researcher. You are so certain about it. You have to leave the door open that one day, many years from now, there's going to be this young cat who walks through the door, and they're like, I saw your work. Did you ever think about this? And they show hmm. you something. And you're, many, you have to leave that door open to be blown out of the water of, oh, my goodness. I didn't even think about that. Oh, my, this is great. You know, you have to leave your briefcase and your file open to take that evidence and, and put it in. All, all you can do is gather the evidence and make the best determination you can, but you have to leave the door open so that the contrary may be shown. So that's one reason why I brought you guys up there, is that I want other eyes on it. My eyes have been on this for a long, long time. You know, sometimes you kind of go blind after a while. But I wanted someone else to go up there with me you know, here's here's what I was looking for. Here's what I found. You guys look in the ground. You guys look at the topography. You guys risk your life going down the mountain with me. You know, what do you guys think of What do you guys think about this yeah. kind of thing? And so that's that's one reason why I really appreciate you guys going up with me. Well, it was one. So Mark, because of the, I mean, there's been a lot of change to the topography up there. Obviously, there was a, a mountain that exploded very close by. So. Um, what were some of the challenges that, that you ran into in, in trying to locate the capsule? Um, you know, a lot of people talk about how was the cabin found. And I think the more important question, the, 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 the cabin site, evidence that really for me solidified the cabin site was found in um, later June of 2013, so three years ago. And I think that the more important question is why was the cabin not found prior to that? Why wasn't the site of the 1924 incident found prior to the stuff that I found? There's two things going on. One is Fred Beck's book. Of, again, I fought the Mount, I fought the Eight Man of Mount St. Helens. He does provide clues in that book as to the location of the site on the north side of Ape Canyon. Okay, well that's the first thing. You know, is Ape Canyon really Ape Canyon? Is Ape Canyon that we call today was that really where it took place? Because Ape Canyon was named after the incident, and I did look in the field at other canyons, and I ended up disregarding it. He did provide clues, but some of those clues are frankly misleading. Um, and I think that we as a investigative community have been relying far too much on Fred Beck's book, on the clues that were provided there. I think there were good clues as a starting point, as a, as a good jumping-off point, but we've been relying too much on that. Fred Beck was, in fact, a real person. Marion Smith was a real person. The incident was a real incident and was published. You have to go back to the original You have to go back to what was documented and what was published in 1924. You have to go to those sources and find them, read them, and copy them, right? The other thing that I think was misleading, um, well, I'm sorry, not misleading, but I think the other thing that was like a barrier to the whole 
um, research that eventually found the cabin site was simply topography. Um, as you guys can attest to, it's not easy to get to at, at all. I mean, the, the trail was now called the Ape Canyon Trail, formerly the Pine Creek Trail, is a well-used trail, and mountain bikers will run you over and everything like that. And the cabin site is not that far off of the trail, but when you leave the trail and you need to get to the cabin, it's not, it's not easy to get to at all. But the thing about it that got me started on the field work was that despite the fact that this site is only about, you know, say about two miles from the epicenter of the eruption, I started to feel like it may have survived the eruption and there may have been evidence left in the ground. Here's the reason why, is that when the mountain blew off and it predominantly blasted off to the north, um, there were all kinds of pyroclastic flows and then mud flow. Well, first there were poisonous gas flows and then pyroclastic flows and then mud flows that came down and started barreling down the mountain. There was an article that was published. It's one of the most famous ones that was published in Oregonian in a two-part series, July the 19th and July the 20th of 1924 where the sports writer for the Oregonian, a guy named L.H. Gregory, known as Jack Gregory, um, was ordered by his editor when they found out about this whole incident uh, of these guys being attacked by Mountain Devils, eight men. He was ordered to go up there and check it out. Jack Gregory did not interview any of the miners. He went up to um, Kelso, and uh, one guy that helped him out, was the deputy sheriff. His name was uh, Charles Dunbar and Dunbar's son. And they traveled up there uh, to go visit the cabin site and spend the night. Jack Gregory's um, narrative that he published in the Oregonian uh, was almost like a travel guide. He told us step by step, in a sense, what he was doing to go from Kelso, go up to Castle Rock, go up to Spirit Lake, go on the trail up to the cabin site. Um, and he spent the night. Nothing happened. Nothing spooky happened. And he left and went back the next morning. But it was that article that gave me some clues about what Gregory did in that week just after the attack that got him to the cabin site using those clues of what he didn't he didn't draw me a map there was no map and there was no mining map there was nothing that told me exactly where the cabin was there was just this written narrative of what the site looked like and and what and, you know what what he saw on the ground but what it did is it gave me a couple of clues to let me know about where he was. He was on the north side of Ape Canyon on the east side of Pumice Butte. Pumice Butte forms the north side of Ape Canyon. So what gave me inspiration to start going out there and looking in the field was that I could see on the aerial photos of today compared with aerial photos prior, going back in time prior to the eruption, that what must have happened was that the flows came down off of the east side of Mount St. Helens, 
and hit the south end of the place of Abraham. They were splashed up and hit the west side of the butte and then splashed back down into the plains. From there, they drained south to the Muddy River. They drained, they drained east into Ape Canyon and a little bit north into another Ape Canyon. The aerial photos proved that the east side of the butte was essentially spared from these catastrophic eruptions that happened only two miles away, right? The other thing that helped uh, tremendously was there was a fellow named Lippman and his comrade, oh, golly, Devereaux? I can't remember the other fellow, but these, these two guys were USGS employees that were ordered right after the eruption to do a comprehensive geologic study of the effects of the eruption. And so they picked different places around Mount St. Helens. Unfortunately, one of the places that they looked at was Ape Canyon. And they published their report, I think, in 1982 or three. And it's, a, it's at the library in, in Vancouver, and you can go and take a look at it. But the Ape Canyon report showed that. They showed in the USGS report that the mud flows scoured the whole west side of the butte, but the majority of the flows drained south in the muddy and east, to Ape, east into Ape Canyon. And they went on the other side of the butte, where the three of us went, right? And they said that on the east side of the butte, there was pumice and, and asphalt only equaling about two-tenths of a foot. Only two-tenths of a foot, that's three inches, on the east side of the butte. So this east side of the butte, where the cabin site is, is only two miles from this mountain that blew its head off, but the east side of the butte was so well protected that it only got about three inches worth of stuff on top of it, and it wasn't scoured at all by any mud flow. The other thing that you can see at the site, comparing aerial photos, and you can see at the site, are that there are extremely large Douglas fir trees to the tune of six or eight feet in diameter that are only two feet from the, they're only two feet from the crater. So with all of that, that's what got me started on the field of work. That's what got me started to think, wait a minute. This small, tiny, limited site miraculously somehow must have been spared by the eruption and thereby the Ape Canyon site. And by Jack Gregory's account, that's where he went. And looking at it after tracing his footsteps, yeah, that's where he did go, and that's where the captain site is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're like I said, uh, Mark, you you uh, seem pretty confident that this is the area. What findings, uh, I mean, uh, you know, whether it's pictures or things you found in the area that led you to believe that this is, in fact, the cabin location. Uh, you know, what physically have you seen and found in this area that leads you to believe that 100% this is the cabin site? Sure. Well, like I said, may the contrary be shown, so I'll call it 99%, right? Yeah, But the, right. <laughs> the thing is, is that when Gregory went up there... Um, I can't say this is the only reason why the site was found, but it is, it's a huge, huge factor, is that when Gregory went up with Charles Dunbar, the deputy sheriff, and his son, um, he said that the conditions were foggy and that they did not lend itself well to photography. Nonetheless, Gregory did take photos in 1924. 
He took a photo of the long side of the cabin, and he took a photo of the short side of the cabin, uh, showing that chinking that was knocked out during the initial ram of the cabin. Um, also, if you look really carefully, and it's noted, is is this small divot in in the ground of of one of the creatures trying to dig under the cabin, trying to get at the miners. But what he did is when he took a photo of the long side of the cabin, that photo was published. Again, I'm I'm, I'm sorry, you guys. I got to get on my soapbox for a minute. When you look at Abe Canyon today <laughs> on the internet. Um, the Oregonian article is is transcribed, and it's transcribed accurately. You know, the J- Jack Gregory's article is on the internet. You can go, you can go and look at it and read it. But where did that article come from? For me, I have to see the original article. So when you go to look at the original article at the microfilm historical society or library, lo and behold, bam. There are photos of the cabin that aren't on the transcription on the Internet. But when you look at the photo, what it is, is a black and white 1924 photo. In the background, you see trees that are silhouetted. In the midground of the photo, you are looking at the long side of the cabin. In the foreground of the photo, you see the stumps of the trees that they sawed off in order to make the cabin and fell trees and, and use the logs for, for building the structure. I knew that if I could find those stumps, I knew I would be close by. Again, I'm sorry, it's my land surveying experience. Uh, a, a lot of the time trees are used as reference objects to a certain land corner or a property corner. And a lot of the time with our Pacific Northwest logging history, those trees are cut down. Old-time loggers, though, knew to make their cut up well up the tree, well up the stump, in order to preserve the stump. The stump often had scribing on it. The bark was blazed, and, and information was scribed on the stump. So a lot of the time in land surveying work, especially in extremely rural areas, you will often use trees or old remnants of stumps in order to establish land corners that you can from historical survey notes. So I'm I'm very, very much into preservation of, of trees and the stumps and, and I know what to look for in the ground. Stumps or trees, when you cut them off, the first thing that's gonna happen is they're gonna bleed sap like crazy in order to heal the wound thereby preserving the injury to the tree, thereby preserving the wood that's there. Um, So I knew if I could find those stumps, I knew I'd be close. Number one, because I have no record, I confirmed this with Rick McClure, who recently retired as the head archaeologist for the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, that that area on the east side of Pumice Butte, on the north side of, of Ape Canyon, had never been commercially logged. There's no record of it being commercially logged, and it makes sense. Um, now it's in the volcanic monument, and you can't log up there. Uh, but prior to that, it was just so treacherous and dangerous that those few valuable trees down there were not worth the expenditure of life and money in order to get them out. So there was no logging that was done up there. And if I found any kind of evidence of stumps, 
I knew I'd be close because it probably only pertained to the Vendor White Mine Ape Canyon Attack Cabin, right? And so working my way down, I'd been up there about four or five times. I had only gotten to a certain point. In 2013, it was my first time camping up on the mountain, specifically to research Ape Canyon. And I was up there with one pal um, uh, named Gabe Temme. And Gabe was ahead of me fighting through the vine maple and and we were just kind of looking around as presenting evidence to Gabe and, and this is what I'm looking for fighting through the vine maple and Gabe is there and he says Mark you know, guess where I am I can't even see him through the, through the leaves of the vine maple I was like okay yeah you're right there he's like 20 feet away and he says I'm standing on a stump he's on a stump and he, we start searching around there's another stump and there's another stump, and there's another stump, and we start finding all these stumps in an area of what eventually became uphill from the cabin site. Well, we had a metal detector with us, and we start snooping around, and I end up finding in the ground a piece of wire, not that far underneath the surface, that was stuck vertically in the ground. And looking at it, it had a bailing, a curlicue on the end of it. And um, as if it was used to bale something together, or it was a bailing from a, a pot or whatever. And so that's pretty, you know, it was pretty cool. You know, we found stumps and we found a wire. Well, a bird could have brought that wire from three miles away and dropped it there. Okay, well, it could be something. So then we start snooping out more with the metal detector. And we end up finding these nails in the ground. These, uh, and they're all kinds of different size nails, different different size. Maybe a, a six penny or an eight penny. Maybe up to somewhere of a, of a of a twenty penny spike or something like that. We started finding all these nails in the ground. Well, these nails seemed to follow a line that ran, say, perpendicularly to the slope of of the mountain of the of the butte that we were on. We ended up finding them about four, six inches underground, and we ended up finding them eventually, finding them in an old rotten log to the point where you pull the nail out by its head, and you're pulling out rotten old log material, meaning that they were driven into the log at one point, right? So that's pretty darn exciting until we ended up on that first trip, um, just inside the log, finding a spoon. We were messing around, scuffing the earth and everything, and we found an intact spoon on what would be the inside of that log, the downhill side of the log, right? So at that point, when we found the spoon, found the stumps, found the rotten log with the nails driven into it, that was pretty much it. That that was was like holy smokes! We actually found the dang thing. I mean, if it were safe, I'd be doing handsprings on the mountain, right? And so it was the next year snooping around uh, by the base of one of the stumps. Um, we were snooping around, and we ended up finding a piece of metal in the ground, just underground, right at the base of the stump. And what it was was about eight to ten inches worth of a broken saw blade. It was a broken, mm. say, a, a buck saw. Um, I've, I've since I took photos of it. And I've since I've since compared it with other photos, and I believe it was a buck saw, a, a single person saw, with a handle right. that was probably about three or four feet long, um, that was broken off at the base of the stump. 
And all I can figure is that since you guys have been up there, you know what it's like. I must have, like, really hacked off these miners to break a saw at this stop. Yeah. Because today, if you break a tool, it's about 30 minutes to the hardware store. Up there, it's like two days to get back to the hardware store to find a new saw. But finding that saw, too, at the base of the stump. When the stumps in the Oregonian photo were clearly sawn off and not chopped down with an axe, they were clearly sawn off. They were using a saw to chop to chop down these trees to make the cabin. So I think we found part of the saw as well. So all of that, that's why I'm 99% sure that we're at the Ape Canyon cabin site now. Yeah. And, and you've also, Mark, you, you brought, you know, you brought tools up there. You brought a metal detector. And there's a certain tree there that we're pretty sure, at least I know you're pretty sure it was there uh, at the time of the cabin, uh, when the cabin was around, that you oh, picked no. up metal sure it was. Uh, in this tree. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. And I'm so glad, Gunner, you had a chance of that, too. Because uh, Gunner, Gunner, <clears throat> Gunner came along with, with the metal detector as well, and he worked on that tree as well on this trip that we just got back from two or yeah. three weeks ago. Now, the you know, with a metal, a metal detector, such a magical tool. You can always find really cool stuff, whether it's monster-related or not, uh, in the ground. And so I worked on that tree specifically, and some of that, well, a lot of that was from the story of a whole bunch of gunshots going off trying to find off, fight off monsters. Part of that, too, was my interviews with uh, Rod, uh, Fred Beck's grandson. When he visited the site in the early 1970s, he told me specifically that there were pitons uh, that were driven into the base of the tree. Um, you know, just a piece of metal that was sharp on one end and with a looped eye on the other that you could hammer into something um, in order to thread a rope through. That's what a piton is, and then you pull up your rope in order to kind of give you a guide. He said there were pitons driven at the bottom of the tree in order to uh, pull things up from the mine. The topography today is somewhat similar, I feel, to the topography in 1924 at the immediate cabin site. And I say that because the reporters in 1924 who visited the site described what it was like. And what it was in 1924 was there was the cabin on somewhat of a bench, and then there was a short drop-off, say 20 or 30 feet down to the entrance to the mine. You go beyond that mine a little bit, and then you have the big, big drop-off of 100, 200 feet plus in order to get down to the bottom of the canyon. And so what Rod described to me was that there were pitons you know, hammered into the base of the tree in order to pull stuff up from the mine, which was like about 20 or 30 feet below them or whatnot. So that's one thing I was looking for. The other thing that I was somewhat looking for is that I have record of the mining location notice. Statute required that when you filed a location notice for a mine, you had to put a physical written notice, a sign, on something right near your mine saying, this is Mark's mine, don't mess with it, right? And so they did note in their mining location notice that they did post a sign. They posted the mining location notice 
onto a tree above the entrance to the mine. Reporters also noted that they also saw that mining location notice above the mine when they visited it, right? And so when I went up there, or every time I go up there with a metal detector, I'm always checking out this tree. There's a sizable tree just downhill from the cabin site, oh, 30, 40 feet or so. And um, it's uh, big. It's um, six or eight feet in diameter. And so running the metal detector over this tree, yeah, you bet, there's something down at the base of the tree, uh, maybe a foot, less than a foot above the ground. But also, interestingly enough, when you run the metal detector over the tree, there's something way over your head. I don't know. I mean, Gunner, you were there. You can tell me. It's like, I don't know, seven oh, yeah. or eight feet above ground or something like that. I mean, it's like you have maybe, to reach maybe, up. Yeah. Yeah, maybe 10 feet. There was, there's a certain area that does ping um, very consistently. So it, It's kind of like you're picking an apple off of a tree or something. You're like <laughs> reaching up way over your head. I mean, the metal detector... It, you're not you're not touching this with your hand at all. You're, the end of your metal detector is finding it, and you're, the end of your wand. And so it's a considerable amount above the ground. And so Douglas fir trees, of course, when they're very, very young, <clears throat> shoot up. They, they, they spend all their energy and growth straight up in the air, and they'll gain height very, very quickly. And as the years go on, they keep on sending up the majority. I can't. I can't say a percentage. Maybe sixty or seventy seventy percent of their energy to keep on shooting up, to keep on growing up. The rest of that is to grow out. And so a tree will grow faster. A Douglas fir tree will grow faster up than it will out in diameter at its base, right? And so it, I think it's plausible that any metal that we're hearing up above our heads at 8 or 10 feet above the ground in this one fir tree in 1924 could have been more like 5 or 6 feet above the ground, you know, and just in the intervening 80 or 90 years, it got, you know, it gained another 4 or 5 feet vertically. Uh, but no doubt about it that, that that fir tree just down from the cabin site has metal in it, and it has a fair amount of metal buried in it. What it is, I don't know. The permitting that would involve, as far as digging into that tree, would be exorbitant. <laughs> would be exorbitant right. for us to dig in there and find out what's what's in there. It, there's something in there, uh, it, and I I am confident, given the cabin site, it's probably mining related. Uh, it could be nails of stuff driven into the tree. It could be pitons driven into the tree. And I hate to say it, you guys, there's that thing that's that's held out for me. It could it could, it could be bullets in the tree. It could be bullets. It could be bullets like the holy tree. grail. I mean, that'd be the holy grail for this story, given the location and to, to start finding to find a bullet up there would be spectacular. You and I, it, you guys and I, if we were. If we had been working a mine for two years, even even in our most beer-swilling moments, we're not going to waste ammunition or waste our time shooting our guns into a tree 30 feet away. You know what I mean? Right. You know, we might do it for fun on a camping trip that we do once a year, but we're not going to be doing it while we're up there working, right? 
And so if there were bullet fragments in that tree, they're probably there for a reason. Right. You have to, I mean, you got to think about this, uh, what you're packing in and packing out. Specifically, what you're packing in. You know, you have a limited supply. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to go hop over here and, and, and buy some more ammunition and come back. No, it's it's a it's a trek. Uh, well, that's, so a, you're that's very, a very good point, Shane. That's an excellent yeah. point. That is bear country. That's ex- that's an excellent point. That's bear country. There are cougar up there. There are things that you know, if things got really really bad, could come after you. You would want to save your ammunition. You know, you're not you going to waste and, it. And, Exactly, and perhaps you 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 have elk and deer in there, which there are, as well as other critters. Um, you know, you're going to save that for a meal or something of that nature. I mean, you're not going to waste your ammunition just firing off. Nowadays, you know, we go camping and stuff. You just hop down the road and go to your local whatever store and buy ammunition and blast away. And, you know, you don't worry about running out per se. But sure. back then, in an area like <clears throat> where we went, <laughs> you're I couldn't imagine wasting. Ra- I could not imagine wasting rounds on a tree or just firing shots. I just couldn't imagine it. Today, a, I mean, just to just to let there know, um, there there's not very much water up there right now. If you go if you go up there and you need water, it's a bit of a trek to go find water. Today, it would be like you and me going and getting water, coming back to camp and pouring it out on the ground. You know, why would it be, why would, after that, you know, hour-long trek to go get water, why would we be wasting water laying it on the ground when I'm going to be thirsty later, right? It'd be the same thing. These guys were living off of rice and beans, predominantly, but if there's something that wandered through camp that they could eat, that they recognized, sure, they're going to shoot it and they're going to cook it up, right? So, you know, you don't want your paper to be empty when that deer or elk wanders through or a bear or whatever. They were living, subsistence living up there in camp conditions, you know. So it only makes sense that they're not going to be shooting off guns just for fun into a tree. Right. 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 You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of wasting, and, and not that this, you know, you, you taking us out there to this area was wasting, but you were you, – your time out in this area I know is valuable, and you spent it wisely. Uh, in fact, while we were down in this area, um, just kind of get fathoming the whole area to ourselves and searching for things, um, you kind of disappeared on us. And uh, Well, you disappeared on us twice, twice. I went through a portal, uh, first, you guys, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you went through a portal. <laughs> well, well, the first time, I didn't follow you. Um, I wasn't sure, you know, I was so uh, enthused, you know, so enthused with the area and getting down to the nitty-gritty and just uh, just soaking it up for myself. Yeah. That when you you took off, I didn't follow you. Um the second time I did. But what were you doing? Uh you know, you were obviously, I know what you were doing, but for the audience, what were you doing? And you may have located another piece of the puzzle. Yeah. The first, one of the first things I wanted to do, to do for you guys and you guys are nuts. For some reason, you got you guys agreed to go back up with me later. Um, I don't know why you did that, but you guys agreed to go up with me later. But what I wanted to do is um, you guys did great. I was so proud of you guys getting down that slope safely, and we made it at the cabin site. And, geez, this is, you guys, this is Ape Canyon, you guys. I mean, we all grew up with this story. I mean, it was just, you know, chilling just being there. So I wanted to give you guys 
you know, your moment there at, at the captain site. And so I split. But one thing that I've been working on for the cabin site, the cabin site needs a lot more needs needs a lot more work. There's more to investigate up there. Of course, um, I didn't get around to the survey. I couldn't find my compass and all that kind of jazz. I got to go up there and do the survey. But one integral part to the story is the site of the spring. These guys, of course, before the Fourth of July, took their shots at the spring site and everything. I'm hoping that there is some evidence in the ground, maybe something that was left at the spring site, a bucket, anything. But I feel like I have determined the spring site of where the spring is, just north of the cabin. The reporters told me in their 1924 write-up that the spring was about 75, 100 feet away from the cabin site in the obvious what I would call today an area where the spring is is about 100 feet away from the cabin site. And so I wanted to go up there and investigate it some more. Since the eruption, the hydrology of the whole mountain, of course, but the east side of the mountain has changed a lot. And so perhaps what probably was 90 years ago, relatively old-growth forest, is an intense, dense vine maple choke. You guys fought through some of these, this vine maple, and it's, it's, it's no vine maple like I've ever experienced before. Usually for vine maple, you kind of like walk around the trunks and you fight your way through it. With this vine maple, you're walking through the actual bush. You're walking on top of the tree. It's so well choked up there so that to go 100 feet to the spring site takes me half an hour. I mean, it takes a long time in order to go only 100 feet. But I was going up there, poking up there, and, and investigating it. Just north of the cabin site is a small, uh, sort of small canyon, and then beyond that small canyon is a visible draw, a visible gentle slope where the water goes through. And so I went up there just poking around, and when I was up there, um, when I was going to the spring site, I suddenly noticed there was this small, tiny ledge, this small tiny divot in the ground, maybe eight or ten inches wide, um, that was going to the spring site that I was. So I went up to the spring, hung out there for a little bit, and then came and rejoined you guys. And when I rejoined you guys, I followed this little divot in the ground, and it was a distinctive, what one would call trail. I mean, there's not much of it left anymore underneath the vine maple and everything. But it's a, def it's, a, it's a definite cutout where you're coming down, say, a 45-degree slope, and then suddenly it drops down a few inches and then goes 10 inches and then drops down another, you know, another number of feet in a 45-degree angle, providing a cross-section of what could be considered a trail. So I follow that out through the vegetation, and sure enough, it led directly back to the cabin site. So I think that I'm pretty hot on that trail that led from the spring back to the cabin site that the miners used. Now, when yeah. you came down with me, Shane, I wanted to check out the, the slope below the, <laughs> the cabin site. And it was one of those things that, well, frankly, you know, you don't talk to your significant other wives partner about too much because it's one of those things of like you did what? But it's a little bit taking <laughs> yeah. your life in your hands. 
I think that I, I, we, you and I were down below the cabin site on a small bench, maybe about 20 or 30 feet below the cabin site before it dropped down, killing yourself down into, into, into Ape Canyon proper. I am fairly confident right now that the mine has collapsed, probably from the eruption. You know, a volcanic eruption naturally produces huge earthquakes, you know, during and before and during the eruption. With with those quakes, I feel, particularly since we're all dealing with volcanic rock and basalt, which is pretty fragile, um, basalt tends to be formed, and then water gets in there, and up in the mountains it freezes and it cracks, and it tends to spall off. It tends to fall off. And so when you have a big, massive earthquake that's about to erupt a volcano, you know, those cracks get all shaken up. And I feel that the walls of Ape Canyon have kind of peeled off a little bit. One thing about, about the historical record compared to today is that reporters told me it was about 10 feet from the side of the cabin off to that first drop-off of about 20 feet. Today, it's more like five feet. You only go from that corner of the cabin that we found, and you only go four or five feet, and then you're dropping off 20 feet, right? So I think that some of the walls have peeled off. When you go down below the cabin site, like you saw, Shane, where you were there with me, um, there is a relatively distinctive slide, maybe, if you will, kind of a rock slide, where if I were hauling spoils out of a mine, I'd be dropping all my spoils right down that slide. And so there's that slide right right below the cabin site, but there's no mine. There's no hole in the ground. So I believe, given what the reporters told me in 1924, compared with the conditions of today, that the mine is gone. I think the whole mine has collapsed. There might be, there's a couple of holes, there's one hole which does blow air, indicating that there's a, there's a void back in there somewhere. But this hole is only 8 or 10 inches in diameter. You know? So there might be something left in there, but I think the majority of the mine, it's gone. There's, there's no mine left anymore. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. I, I actually followed your crazy butt down there and uh, <laughs> got myself in a little bit of a precarious situation. But uh, I had to follow the madman, so uh, I did. And <laughs> but I'll tell you, it, I, yeah, I'm pretty. Uh, you're, you're spot on. Uh, you know, I haven't been down there and looked at the area, and yeah, I'm, I'm right, right there. But it's blown out. It's gone. It's just not there to be seen. Um, though I think there there is evidence that there was a mine there. <clears throat> um, I think so too. Yeah, uh, much. The, the cool thing about this, Mark, is I know you're a man that falls through and just is relentless. Much more work to be done out there. There, there there's is. so much to be done out there, and there's gonna be more trips out there, and I hope to be included. Uh, but having said that, you know we're we're getting close to the end of the show here. I have to ask you this because we we you know one of the cool parts of this trip that Gunnar and I partook in was the fact that um, you, along with your, your uh, cohort, <clears throat> cohort uh, Angus, shared some That's possible Bigfoot-related stuff out there you know, that may, may have happened to you guys and also some of the physical evidence you guys possibly found out there. 
um, I have to include that in the show uh, because to me, you know, around the campfire, it was I was I was fiending for it. I was like, spill it, tell me. And it was, you know, at the time it was pouring down rain, and uh, we'll get to that. We'll yeah. get to that. But eventually, <laughs> we got da- we got down to it, and uh, it was it was fascinating stuff. Yeah, I I realized when you said that, I looked at the clock and it's like, my goodness, you know, we're we're almost done with this show. I talk too much, but yeah, you're right. No, you're um, um, no. <laughs> we we all, you know, you get you guys in your show often talk about you know that experience, you know, the validating experience, that verification for you, which I never really have had anything like that. Frankly, except for it, up at Ape Canyon. And um, it was on our first overnight trip to do the Ape Canyon investigation of the cabin site. And, yeah, um, the first night, we were up there for two nights. And the uh, first night, I didn't experience anything, uh, but Angus did. And it was something very close to camp. And it was something, it was just perhaps about one or two in the morning. And, um, yeah, there was something talking to him very, very close by. And it was a low, guttural, chattering sound very, very close. And um, it frankly freaked him out <laughs> a lot. Um, and um, Saturday, there were five of us up there at the time. <clears throat> Nobody heard anything else, but, but Angus sure did. Brad sure did. And so it was the next night. Saturday night, and it was uh, 10 or 11 at night. There were just a few lumens left from the sun going down, and you know, frankly, you guys, it, it, it's, it spooked me out. It was the 89th anniversary of the Ape Canyon incident, but it was really darn close to the anniversary, and there were five guys in the cabin that were attacked. There were five of us. Uh, somebody busted their tooth. And had a toothache during the 1924 incident. I broke a tooth on some trail mix. The coincidences were all just kind of lining up too much for me. And so um, the sun was just going down. And way up on a ridge top, maybe a third of a mile away or so, up uphill towards the mountain, there was something up on the ridge top talking. And it was no other animal sound like I've ever heard before. And it was repeatedly talking just going on in what, you know, by my ear is gibberish. It was just yak, 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 yak. And then you wait just a few seconds, 10, 15 seconds later, maybe a 1,000 feet down the ridge, a little bit downhill, there was a response. And those two things would just talk back and forth. Wait maybe about five or six minutes, there was a third one. Another five or six minutes. A fourth one further down the ridge. And then everybody be quiet, quiet, shh, shh, shut up, shut up. Way down the valley, you could barely hear a fifth one. And this one, two, three, four, five, these five things that were talking up there on the ridge were talking back and forth, presumably about us. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> they were talking about, I don't know, going to the Minute Mart or the bar or whatever. Uh, but they were definitely talking to each other back and forth back and forth, up and down this ridge, to the point where it got to be about midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, let's go to bed. Let's have them have, let them have their conversation. And we went to bed. And it was just before dawn. The night was quiet, and I was kind of alert at that point. 
and it was just before dawn, and through the skylight of my tent, I could see the light was about the same value as it was during the dusk. And all of a sudden, up on the same ridge, I hear them talking again about two or three times, two or three times. And so I dozed off, and one of the members in our party, Ben, when I got up, eight or so, eight or so, he said, did you smell that? No, I didn't smell that. Apparently, Ben smelled something about the same time when I heard these guys talking, smelled something so strongly that it woke him up. A smell was so strong that it woke him up. It was this heavy, musky, animal, musky smell that woke him up. And it was, he said it was right in camp. It really startled him, and it shook him up really bad. Fortunately, this was Sunday morning, the morning that we were hiking out, because he was ready to leave. Um, so that was in 2013. In 2014, uh, it was for the anniversary, the 90th anniversary of the Ape Canyon attack. We hiked out to Spirit Lake, the same trail that the miners took in 1924. We got about three-quarters of the way to Spirit Lake, <clears throat> and there was a strange wash. There was a well, not a strange wash, but it was a, it was a glacier wash. It was a place where the glaciers melted and drained and drained out, leading off the trail, maybe three quarters of a mile to where this wash eventually hit a cliff and went down into a dramatic box canyon. Um, our our two companions, uh, Blake and Casey, <clears throat> Blake Nelson and Casey Caddo. They were with us, and um, they had lost they had lost the trail crossing to try to maintain the trail and get across this wash. And they ended up maybe five or six hundred feet away from the trail, and they found something enough so that Blake stayed by what they found, and Casey came back to find us further back on the trail, a quarter mile back where we were walking. And he said, we found something, and we walked up, and we met Blake, who was protecting it. And yeah, sure enough, um, in the sandy bottom of this wash was a sizable footprint, and it was profound to me. I've never seen anything like it before. You guys have seen lots of this stuff, but it really kind of shook me up. It was um, 14, 15 inches in length, and it was just a distinctive five-toed print. The one thing that was very, very strange about the whole area was that there were elk or deer print in the area in this wash, and they were going off in all kinds of crazy directions. They were, they were just, it was just not a herd walking through, but they were going off in all kinds of crazy directions. Further down the wash, I found a set of elk prints <clears throat> that were coming down a gravel side slope to this wash and then just maybe eight or ten feet away from it I found this whole set of what I would call bipedal prints uh, following this set of deer prints and the curve and the, tr and the track of it was as if this bipedal person who left the tracks was trying to cut off the deer the deer or elk was going one way and it was as if you and I were trying to round around to catch it. And these prints, mind you, these were well-worn prints and probably I'd seen some snow. But I put, a, I put a measuring stick on it and took video of it. And these prints were like 18 inches 
long, and the stride was a good five, four or five feet long between the strides. Mm. It was a big hunk of something chasing the steer, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So that's what I found. Well, there, yeah, between the noises and the tracks, yeah, it freaked me out. There's something, there's something up there enough to pay attention to. Here's the thing. You know, Mark, we're down the last couple of minutes. We're going to have to end this. But, uh, man, what a fascinating show. But here's the thing, too, though. Uh, having been up there, the amount of life in this area is phenomenal. Uh, yeah. Everything's come back. Uh, and I would assume um, if what uh, those miners encountered back in 1924, the story's true, that uh, it has moved back in like all the other known animals that uh, we witnessed uh you know, uh, and uh, found tracks and impressions of. It's a fascinating area, and the future for this area is it's uh, the story's not been written yet. Uh, you got a lot of research to do there, uh, and yeah. uh, we look forward to hearing back from you on your future excursions, man. Well, I think you guys are going to be part of it too. You guys are very, very welcome to go up there with me. But there's one thing I got to leave you guys with. It's a guru of mine who followed me. Through this story, Gene Westerberg is a tremendous scientist, and he's done great things in his life, scientific research, but he's also done some fun, fun research similar to Ape Canyon. So Gene, as a family friend, has followed me through my whole Ape Canyon adventure. And so I remember calling him about, because he's been wanting to be updated, I remember calling him the, the day or a day after I found the proof of labor uh, of when the miners said that they were done and all work was completed on July the 10th, the night of the co- coinciding with the night of the attack. Gene is not a uh, monster mysteries of the universe kind of guy, but he's a research scientist, and I value his opinion a lot. I told him that the proof of labor said that they were done on July the 10th, and I'll never forget Gene's quote. He said. Something must have scared the pants off of those guys. And I think something Absolutely. did. Absolutely. I think something Absolutely. Scared, I think something scared the hell out of them and got them <laughs> off the mountain never to return. Well, Mark, I, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, we could go on for uh, probably another two or three hours just, just talking with you. Um, I think we're I, I think we're I, going to again in the future next time we meet. That's right. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I can't uh, thank you enough for for inviting us out. Uh, definitely going to make it back out there again with you. Um, okay, good. Yeah, and it's it's uh, I I have a huge appreciation for the amount of of work that you put into preserving and uh, the history of this story and. Um, you are definitely the expert on the Ape Canyon incident, and, oh, and you guys. It, it's ama- it's amazing to me. The so if, uh, if anybody's listening, this has a Bigfoot conference coming up. Uh, Mark is has I've seen Mark present a couple different times now. Plus, I've had the pleasure of of his live presentation in the field at the site, and uh, <laughs> I would highly recommend inviting Mark to come in and speak at oh, your presentation. You so. <laughs> Um, we're uh, no. just about out of time here, so I would again I, for for uh, Shane Corson and uh, our good friend Mark Marcel. This is uh, Gunner Monster from Monster X Radio, and uh, with a special presentation of Escape from Eighth Canyon with Mark Marcel. Thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.